Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I think you got to build something that you want to go to. You can't just theorize that maybe other people would like it. And so I was like, I want to build a place for me that's going to have a good wine list. I can sit. My knees hurt a little bit. I want to be able to show up at eight o'clock and I want to be up close and see a great show. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Post-pandemic, people want an experience. Have you heard that before? But I want to know what kind of experience do they want? This isn't an industry where the margins allow for a lot of trial and error. So I reached out to Michael Dorf, the founder of City Winery. Michael has created the perfect experience for his target market, blending elevated food with an in-house winery and live entertainment. It is exactly what his customers want. And today he's going to unpack how you can use the same formula to find out exactly what your customers want. I overindulged, if you will, in technology and growth. I left in 2003, but from 97 to 2001, we were in a growth spurt with a real focus on media and technology. I had no investors. It was all me up until 97. Then I brought in my first round of money. And then very quickly, I started basically diluting myself out with all kinds of pretty fancy vulture capital deals that I had no idea about that took all these preferences during the dot-com buildup and formed a parent company called Knit Media. Knit Media was doing amazing stuff. I got Bell Lanik as a sponsor and Intel and Apple fooling around with technology. We were one of the first streaming. We were the first live music nightly streaming in the United States. But I screwed up because I got so obsessed with it. I started calling music content. And I started not as much respecting the shows and the experience as much as I was fascinated by reaching people all over the globe, even with a primitive compared to today streaming, but short baud rates, 14.4 modems. But the idea of getting the music from lower Manhattan to Singapore or Europe for free, it was exciting. But I was overzealous with it. I needed to break. I didn't realize it. I diluted myself out and then had some issues with the latest round of investors. It was very tough to leave the baby that you started. But in the end, for me, that was the greatest opportunity to relook at the world. In 2004, I got to do three things that were really great. One, I got a chance to come out to California to Ridge Winery and a guy named David Tate, who was the assistant winemaker there, made three barrels of wine with me and my brother, a guy named Jonathan Nelson. I had so much fun. I truly was drinking the Kool-Aid of winemaking. 
I had always loved wine, but the idea of actually making it was fascinating. I started a concert series at Carnegie Hall that was the music of a big name artist. The first one was Joni Mitchell, and then I've done Bob Dylan and Springsteen with 20 younger artists that are contemporaries, so wide range of people doing the music of, and it was for music education programs and charity. And I've done it now every year, except for pandemic, but uh, raised $1.6 million for charity. And then the third thing I did, which was weird, I had two young boys and I'm a weird kind of Jew. And so I started a Hebrew school for them because I didn't want to send them to a synagogue because I don't, not sure what I believe in, but I know I don't believe in sort of institutional religion. I wanted a New York Jew experience for my kids. So bagels and cream cheese on Sunday morning, reading in New York Times. And so created a thing called Tribeca Hebrew, and it got very popular in a couple of years. So I had to, because I'm not a principal of a Hebrew school, that's for sure. I say fuck way too much. And so (laughs) I gave it to another organization downtown. And that's when I realized I might have to get back to work soon. I could not convince my family to move out west and get 100% into the wine business. So I kind of forced my hand into creating an urban winery, but I was too scared to have go all in with just the winemaking concept here. So I gravitated to what I knew how to do, which was put on a show. As we all know in the hospitality world, you know, the booze is where the margins are. And in the film industry, there's an old saying that the profits are in the popcorn. And so I was like, all right, well, why don't I do a winery, but put on a show? And then I know I can fill the room up and hopefully I can target the programming to fellow lushes like me who really enjoy wine. (laughs) And at the time, and I guess cosmopolitan markets, we all work hard. And so the idea of going to a really good meal and be entertained, you know, going to Broadway and having dinner, it's hard to do in one night. It's hard to mm-hmm. combine the two. So I'm like, there's got to be a way for me to put on a show at eight and serve really good wine. And the wine has to be served in a glass. And the glass has, probably has to be Riedel. I got to convince them to give it to me. So I, one of my first sponsor meetings was getting to the Riedel people. I'm like, I need you. I need a lot of glasses because I'm going to break a lot of glasses. And in fact, <laughs> we probably have the most per square foot ratio of glass breaking in the world in our rooms. Because, you know, when you have 350 people seated down with glass and then you get up for an encore, if it's good, especially a good show, you get up fast and you shake your booty, that a lot of glass breaks. So if we break 15 to 20 glasses at an encore, it's a great show. We do that (laughs) every night. It's a lot of glasses. Anyway, so I wanted to create a model where you could sit, you could have great wine, got to have good food to support the wine, pick your seat. So we needed our own ticketing system at the time and just create a two hour window for people that would be really yummy and special. And I don't know about you, but like, I think you got to build something that you want to go to the vibe, the flavors, whatever it might be. It's like, you got to like it too. You can't, just theorize that maybe other people would like it. You got to want to like it. And so I was like, I want to build a place for me 
that's going to have a good wine list. I can sit. My knees hurt a little bit. I want to be able to show up at <laughs> 8 o'clock, and I want to be up close and see a great show. And if I can do all that, it was hedonistic, very selfish thing, but that's what I wanted. And thank God, so did a lot of other people. Let's unpack that because there's genius in that. I talk with a lot of other restaurant owners and operators. Some are incredibly successful. Some are working their way there. And I can always tell how successful someone is going to be by the way they talk about their avatar, right? Their target customer. Because if it's someone that is not them, they struggle. And everybody wants to talk about their target customer, this customer avatar, as if it's this external human. I personally, I was blessed in this life. I am incredibly ordinary. I like what everyone likes. I do what everyone does. I think what everybody thinks. I am not exceptional in any way. So if I market to myself, I am marketing to the masses. So if I like it, most people will like it. Not because I'm exceptional, but because I fall in line with the trends. And so I have always worked in every tier of dining to serve me. And it has served me well. And when we look at your target audience, because when people hear about this enterprise, it doesn't seem like there's this maniacal focus, right? Like it's music and it's food and it's wine and it's a winery. But where the maniacal focus is, is on your target audience, right? You know exactly who you're trying to reach and you have structured everything around hitting them exactly where their needs lie. I think you're 100% correct. Although don't sell yourself that short. (laughs) You're not that ordinary. I'm looking at you and you have this really cool kind of Jackson Pollock but it's deeper than his work painting behind you. So you appreciate certain things. There's some nuance to that ordinariness that you're pretending and humbly to have. And I think that can be psychographic part of you that is a little different. So you might have these some ordinary things, but you also have these taste profiles that, you know, we're all snowflakes, but if you can get enough of them. So I know I have weird, eclectic, but sophisticated tastes. When I sit with my friends, they're, you know, not all of them, but like some people, I've become the de facto wine list purchase guy, you know, and it's like, come on, wine, we all like it. And they're like, no, no, you. So like not everyone has some depth of certain experience, but I do think people who are coming here are a little more sophisticated, a little more culturally bent we didn't have huge struggles around the vaccine card stuff. Why? Because most of our customers are smart, not yahoos wanting to be anti-vaxxers. And so I think there's enough of us or people similar that was an easy kind of get, if you will, for me, because not that I aspire to be like everyone else, nor they me, but there's enough of us in this sphere. And actually, I think it's an incredibly global thing. Like I'm convinced I can open 100 city wineries in in the next 10 years. Now, with a big caveat, I need a lot more capital. (laughs) I need a lot more employees and we can talk about that. And I need a lot more momentum and I don't want a civil war and no more viral issues and all that kind of stuff. But I think there's enough communities and enough people, enough clients, to your point, out there, customers that appreciate exactly the same kind of things that I like, and they're in markets around the globe. I agree with you. 
again, I think you serve similar food and similar wine to everyone else. And live music is readily available in this world. But the experience that you've crafted for your target market is spot on, right? Because you've eliminated all of the friction. Hey, I know you have kids at home. You can come to my restaurant. You can watch a show. I'll get you in and out in two hours. You don't have to worry about where you're seating because we do ticketed seating. So it's all assigned. Everything is handled for you. You're in and out. And again, the only way to truly differentiate yourself in the market is to offer that perfect experience for your perfect customer. Talk to me about how you develop that. Well, we're working on a thing. We've just launched it and we're going to keep pushing it. But there's nothing worse, especially as a venue restaurant owner, to watch and observe a customer come sit down and then start moving their head around looking for help. And we're really seeing it with our lack of staffing everywhere. So it's become very acute in this sort of trying to get out of the pandemic world. But I don't like to go to a restaurant and wait for a drink. If I'm going in, I want to start drinking my wine or whatever if I'm having a cocktail right away. I have so little patience. And the longer I wait, and my friend, my wife hates this, like I almost put a stopwatch on. I sit down, it's like, all right, let's see how long it takes them to get me a really good gin martini. And if it's more than five minutes, I'm already like, that's it. They don't have five stars for me. I don't care how great the food is or anything. So I've been working on a thing where, especially since we are selling a lot of tickets and when we're doing direct reservations, you get to know your customer in advance. What can we do to take that order for that first drink before they show up? And if we can time it perfectly, could it actually be on the table when they walk in? Could we actually have like Bluetooth connector that would know when that person's walking through the door and therefore we time it so the drink shows up as they sit down? You eliminate that. Now you can delay taking my order or the first food come because I've got an alcoholic beverage in my hand. Everyone should be happy, the restaurateur and the customer. So like I'm trying to think about, again, my experience and what can we do to improve on that in a way. I know that fear, the fear of losing everything or almost as bad, the fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. I would argue that the definition of hospitality is changing, right? It used to be about one-to-one interaction, but now it's more about immediacy. I want my drink. I want it now. I don't want to have to wait for a human being to reorder my next drink. And it's this thing, and I talk about it a lot on the show. One, because it's important, and two, because I just love repeating myself. But like, (laughs) we have to define what is experiential from what is transactional. Uh Because if it's transactional, it should be automated, it should be run by technology, and it should be the most efficient, frictionless experience possible. I think the 
interface, the interaction between experiential and transactional, as you're pointing out, is exactly the balancing act that if it can be done in an elegant way, it's a great model. But again, both of those things, the how-to on the hospitality side and the technology shouldn't, to at least in my view, be thought of as a, a, you have a thesis and therefore you now need to approach it. But it's like, what can we do to better that customer experience? The whole, sure. our diving into technology isn't because we like it. And I don't like spending a lot of money developing our own ticketing programs and future app and all, but how does it make it smoother? How does it make it easier for the customer? And luckily, some firms out there, whether it's Resi and Toast, I mean, there are some nice firms out there thinking about it. I wish they were a little more in the trenches with us talking about they shouldn't be doing R&D in Silicon Valley. The R&D needs to be done in San Diego and New York City and Nashville in a venue. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to talk about your venues. So when I look at City Winery as a restaurateur, I think, fuck, that's expensive. He spent a lot of money on that. Post-pandemic, everybody's thinking small, right? Small venues, small menus, low overhead. But I don't see you changing your model. And so I want to talk about City Winery as a business model. So it's got to be expensive to start, right? Yeah, I think you have to be absolutely crazy to start what I'm doing. I feel like I got very lucky with version one in New York. I wanted a venue, which is what my background was. I picked a size and scale on the music side, 300 seats, that if I did multiple night runs with an artist, I could do four nights, five nights in a row, and get to 1,200, 1,500 tickets. Now I'm competing on the theater side, and I knew a bunch of artists that I liked. Again, I thought the audience would like that. I could make those multiple night runs. So there was a original thinking about scale, like what can I do to compete in New York to actually beat out, if you will, a Live Nation or AEG on a show? And unlike the bigger promoters out there, if my focus and obsessed attention is on the F&B side, where the margins are, you make no money as a promoter from tickets, right? Most of that box office is going to the talent. So the only way the big promoters make money in a big room, especially when they're renting most of those rooms, is that last, I mean, I've done so many shows at Town Hall or Beacon Theater or Carnegie Hall. If you only sell 90% of the house, you're going to lose money. It's those last few tickets that are the profit. So you got to for sure be sold out. And it's really hard. Now, when you sell out festivals and stadiums and stuff, you obviously can make a lot of money. It's a complicated business, and I'm glad I'm not in it. At 300, we kind of fall under the radar of the big guys. We're able to compete. And so I got lucky in that sense. And then mashing it up with an expensive bit of both real estate, but also capital equipment on winemaking and buy all new kitchen equipment. You're spending a bunch of money. And then if it, God forbid, goes wrong, there's no resale on that. There's a lot of auctions out there in the restaurant world. However, the cost of stainless steel continues to go up. So in the breweries and winemaking world, actually tanks are just as valuable 
10 years later then. So there's at least a little bit of value when you're buying it. Anyways, I haven't gone bankrupt yet, so I try not to think too much about that. But yeah, there's big capital costs to open these things up. And once you have one, then the biggest challenge is number two. So I picked Chicago as the second market. Chicago in general hates being second anything. Even though they are officially the second city, you can't say that aloud. So I'm sorry, anyone who's offended, but they're the greatest second market in the world. And we got lucky. We bought a building there and the great neighborhood and it just took off and has blossomed. And once we had two locations and we now have a line, we're we're officially kind of off to the races. And so it's been good. But yes, the cost and barriers to entry is pretty large. We have made a little bit of a shift. And I will say when you say we're staying the same, we're really not. We're opening five new locations this year in 2022, which is a little insane, but you know we're giving it a <laughs> shot. We'll see what the velocity is of growth that we can actually handle. A lot of us on the management team, we were getting poised for some growth in 2020. And so luckily there hasn't been any change in that team in the two years. And we're overly excited to work and grow. And much like the music industry and many of us, we're like, let's go, let's go. Um, just waiting for this fucking pandemic to be an endemic and over. So yeah, the newer locations, we're doing smaller footprint, slightly smaller capacity, single venue, smaller restaurant. Just we've figured out a more consolidated version, if you will, including even much smaller wineries within it. And we'll feed the wineries from more regional winemaking facilities. So St. Louis and Pittsburgh and Columbus and Detroit are all opening sort of Rust Belt, logistically really good to start to regionalize our growth. And we can save a little bit of money on some management. We don't need a beverage director in every location. We'll be doing a chef to cuisine instead of an executive chef. We're going to have some regional marketing, that kind of stuff. So for the first time, start thinking about scale in a little different way. Scale is a new concept really to me. You talk to someone like Ted Turner. I once tried to sell him some wine, met him at a meeting, (laughs) and he's talking about his Buffalo ranches. I'm like, Mr. Turner, it's just fascinating. He's like, yeah, I have the largest herds of bison in America and gazillions of acres and stuff. And now we got a hundred restaurants now that we're using to sell the meat. And I'm like, that's so cool. Would you consider if we found the perfect wine Cabernet, we maybe did. He's like, you know, he didn't really hear that ear the word wine. He goes, yeah, we were thinking about a wine product. So I bought four wineries a few years ago and we've been cultivating. And it's like, that's someone who thinks on scale. I talked to a guy once from WeWork about, you know, their building out. And he's like, yeah, so we just bought a million square feet of white oak wood flooring that's in a warehouse that will roll it out to the 15 new WeWork projects because we want to keep our supply chain smooth and consistent with the flooring. It's like, that's just incredible thinking. Today, we're all hearing about supply chain issues and it is longer to get that Ansel hood in 
today than it was three years ago. And we're going to keep seeing that. And so like, yeah, the concept of scale and growth is a fascinating part of my brain right now. Now, if you could do it over again, looking at this new, we'll call it like tighter model that you've created, would you have rolled that out in the first few venues as well? No, no. I think a little bit of hindsight offering some 2020. There are markets that have a density and population and enough people like a New York and a Chicago and where we are in Atlanta and DC and Boston and Philly that are big enough for, if you will, flagship city winery. But once we get to Toronto and LA and maybe Miami and Houston and London, then there's hundreds of great secondary cities that I'm falling in love with. Columbus, Ohio is so cool. And Asheville and Charlotte, St. Petersburg, you know, I mean. But how do you decide where to go? Well, that's a good question. You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, that guy, Colonel Sanders, he was a real guy. I didn't know this, but that dude with the great goatee, he like stood on corners for the first thousand locations. Like he, you know, combination of empirical analysis, I guess some data, you call it, and then gut instinct. And he was on the ground, like that was his gig. Did he check in the hotels? Hi, I'm Colonel Sanders. You know, I'm in town for a day looking at 15th Street in Ohio, whatever. But that's what he did. So we're trying to both be smart with some data. How do we, to your initial observation and point, like how do we find a bunch of me's in a market? And then is there a way we could guarantee there's enough of them to bring in enough business? That'll be an age old question. And we're starting to work with a firm that is going to help us identify. But my guess is the next 20 locations are exactly the places I think I've started to explore and like. And we are lucky a little bit on the music side in that we have so many relationships with great musicians and their managers and their agents. And we really have a better mousetrap in terms of a venue. So when an artist says, when are you going to open up in Louisville? When will you get me a space in Montreal? We listen to that. First of all, there's no greater compliment than an artist Absolutely. Saying, boy, I could really use your city winery in Minneapolis. There's just not the right place for me. And I take a lot of notes on that. And when we get enough, I guess, critical mass of the music folks saying, you know, we could really use a room like you have in XYZ market, we'll start studying that much faster. What does winning look like? I mean, obviously, like I was going to ask you about 2022 goals, but you're just scaling massively. And so I'm curious to know, did you begin this? I think when we all as entrepreneurs started our first venture, I gave no thought to what is this going to look like in 10 years? What's the best case scenario for me? How do I want this all to work out? But, you know, with every subsequent venture, the more those thoughts creep in and the more I try and figure out what does the end of this look like? What does winning look like? At what point can I put the pads and helmet down and say, you know what, I've done everything I wanted to accomplish here. Have you given any thought to that? Yeah, but first of all, very unsatisfied human being. I'm turning 60 in six weeks. It's kind of freaky because I feel like a punk. My head's like 30 years old. There's so much more to do. 
and I'm so unsatisfied with everything that I don't feel at all like I'm looking at it that way. I feel very, very lucky, Josh. I'd say the single greatest like gift I was was creating a company, the first one, the knitting factory, and screwing so many things up. How to manage staff, how to treat every single person I interacted with, and what was important. In the beginning, it was kind of survival. And I've always worked hard and played hard. And I love that the gray area in between where, so yeah, knowing what's important, I guess to the question of what is a win, what is success, I learned a lot. So when I was able to start over, if you will, and create City Winery, yes, I wanted to make cash for myself and for anybody who was investing in the company. So I have a nickname in the office, Ebedorf, because I do care about EBITDA. Like I approach everything with Excel. If it doesn't pencil out as great as it is, how are you rationalizing a loss? So what is going to be the EBITDA contribution? Um, so I, I approach things pretty conservatively in that sense. But in terms of what winning looks like, I'm willing to spend more on food for better food. I'm willing to pay more for staff to have better staff. I want to create great facilities so that the experience can be better. And now I'm obsessed with what we're doing from an environmental standpoint. We're about to completely overhaul our wine program with a reusable bottle, essentially a growler system like in beer, but we're going over the top with different sizes and significant incentives to return a bottle, financial. So what does winning look like? From a cost standpoint, that probably is not the best way to make money, but is it something that's really important to do? And would it feel great to accomplish kind of a unique approach to serving wine on-premise and off-premise more efficiently for the globe? To me, that's winning. Again, there's so much to do and so much growth opportunity that it becomes very motivating and influencing in my waking up that there's just not enough time to to want to keep doing what I'm doing. And I'm having a ball. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Well, I'm sure everyone says the same thing. Like you always got to do what you love to do. Whenever I'm speaking to a young person and, you know, or go to university, whatever to talk, like there's rules out there. And yeah, some people you got to work to, pay bills and all, but try and find that thing that you do love what you do. I think risk-taking absolutely is something that if you love what you're doing, you're able to throttle down what feels nervous because you're so in it that you're willing to not feel as concerned about the risk. I think it's important to think in Excel. And then once you just look at whatever you can in a spreadsheet first, then if it seems to work, even if that's cryptic rough notes, then spend some time in Microsoft Word or whatever you write in and PowerPoint and make it a razzle dazzle. But make sure the fundamentals are there first. Gotta love what you do. That's Michael Dorf. For more on City Winery, visit citywinery.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.